Hey listeners, Tristan here with a few updates. First, I'm sorry to say the Meiji at 150 podcast will soon be ending when it reaches 150 episodes. Thank you all for listening, but it's time to move on to other projects. On that note, today's episode is going to be a little different. Today's episode is a preview of my new podcast series, Japan on the Record. This series will still feature interviews with scholars of Japan studies, but will broaden out to cover issues in the news and ask experts to weigh in on current events in shorter episodes. In the first episode of Japan on the Record, Dr. Noel Wilson provides historical background for Japan's withdrawal from the International Whaling Commission. In episode two, Dr. Jolian Thomas offers his thoughts on the popularity of Marie Kondo and the Konmari method. Finally, Stay tuned for another special mini-series of podcasts I'm preparing on the theme of Hokkaido 150, coming soon. Thank you again for listening, and enjoy the show! In late December 2018, Japan announced that it would withdraw from the International Whaling Commission and resume commercial whale hunting within its territorial waters as early as 2019. Good morning. Japan has confirmed it will resume commercial whale hunting next July and is withdrawing from the International Whaling Commission. A government spokesman... This came after decades of controversy following the 1986 ban on commercial whaling, after which Japan continued to hunt whales purportedly for the purpose of scientific research. In announcing the withdrawal from the IWC, Chief Cabinet Secretary Suga Yoshihide noted that Japan will restrict whaling to its exclusive economic zone and will only hunt whales that are no longer endangered. Japan's basic policy of promoting sustainable use of aquatic living resources based on scientific evidence has not changed, and under that policy we have decided to resume commercial whaling. He also argued that whaling is a traditional part of Japanese culture and cuisine, noting, in its long history, Japan has used whales not only as a source of protein, but also for a variety of other purposes. Is whaling really a traditional part of Japanese culture and cuisine? And if not, where did it come from? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on this, I talked with Dr. Noel Wilson, Associate Professor of History and International Studies at the University of Mississippi. Dr. Wilson is currently writing a book documenting the history of Japanese whaling in the 19th century, particularly in the northern Pacific waters around the island of Hokkaido. We talked about the often forgotten American connections to the origins of Japanese whaling. One of the overlooked dimensions of the U.S.-Japan relationship seemed to be the connections between Japan and the United States that arose out of the presence of hundreds, really uh, thousands of whaling vessels across the 19th century into the 20th century. As you said, you know, the presence of the U.S. in this history of Japanese whaling often gets forgotten. In fact, it's Matthew Perry who comes in in 1853. And one of the things he's actually concerned about is whaling, isn't he? He was indeed. But it's interesting, you know, when I talk with my students about the origins of map making and how that changed international relations, that you think about the Great Circle Route, in fact, from the Pacific coast of North America to Japan, the most direct route would have taken them, you know, on this curved arc through Hokkaido. And one of the many reasons that Perry showed up in Japan was because of reports of Japanese mistreatment of shipwrecked seamen, largely whalers. And the majority of these had actually wrecked on whaling vessels up in the Hokkaido maritime region in the Akat Sea 
So I started to kind of wonder what was the kind of longer history or the kind of bird's eye view of the significance of this extraordinary presence of U.S. whalers in Japanese waters beyond simply being a prompt for Matthew Perry to show up. And then I understand many of the Japanese whalers who undertake the profession from the 1860s are, are actually training on American vessels. That's in fact true. And recent work in archives in Hokkaido and the Hokkaido Prefectural Archives, as well as the Hakodate City Library, yielded some some really fascinating documents that narrate the development of the first apprentice program for Japanese seamen aboard Western vessels. And they were American whaling ships and also one Prussian whaling ship. And that the first passports issued in Hakodate, and this apprentice program was only available because the central Tokugawa government agreed to creating a passport program. But but anyway, the seamen happened to be from all over Japan, so I think it speaks a little bit to the cosmopolitanism of Hakodate, which is often considered a backwater, very peripheral, kind of in the sticks, marginal port. But it ended up there and actually had, I think, very detailed and expert information about currents, about tides, about water obstacles, in the kind of North Pacific area, well, in the Hokkaido Maritime Zone, from traveling on coastal traders. And so some of these individuals were essentially recruited by the Western whaling vessels to give them better knowledge of the oceans in the immediate surrounding seas so that they could avoid shipwrecks. So in Hakodate, some of the things these apprentices learned aboard the ships was not just about how to work the harpoon guns or the nets to bring the whales in, but a kind of intermediate step was also to maneuver and manage how to read a Western-style sea chart, how to maneuver uh, Western-style sails, which were kind of set up with rope systems that were completely different from the Japanese-style boat. So in some sense, that transition to the deep-sea pelagic whaling was as a result of this influence of the American whaling practice? Yeah. So everyone was getting on board with learning how to navigate a Western-style sailing vessel, a multi-masted ship. And so the same guy who built the Goryokaku Fort, Takira Ayasaburo, started up a navigation school. And the source of much of his knowledge, he'd gotten permission soon after his arrival in Hakodate to go on board these U.S. whaling ships. And so he would walk around the cabins, talk with the captains through a translator about how you get through a, a you know storm, about how you repair a sail at sea when it becomes ripped, and really the nitty-gritty of actually operating a vessel that would allow them to go out into the deep ocean. It's fascinating that there is such long history of, of interactions between U.S. and Japanese whaling, especially when you consider it's the U.S. is one of the most vociferous critics of Japanese whaling. Yeah, it's a bit of an irony then that these U.S. whalers in the late 1860s were responsible for helping launch Japanese open sea whaling. And it wasn't only as part of this program before the Meiji Restoration, but in the immediate aftermath when the central Japanese state was sorting out how to control the larger island of Hokkaido, it put several of the domains in charge of different swaths of the island of Hokkaido. And so Yamaguchi Prefecture was given responsibility for the northwest corner of Hokkaido. And so they attempted in the early 1870s to launch an offshore whaling operation, and at that point, too, bought some of their equipment and even one of their vessels from U.S. brokers in Hakodate, who by that point 
realized that the stocks of whales that they'd been pursuing in the North Pacific were in decline, that their yields weren't where they'd been a decade before, and were trying to offload a lot of equipment that they knew was not going to be profitable to them in the decade ahead. And I assume this comes up in your forthcoming publication, Whaling at the Margins, Drift Whaling, Ainu Labors in the Japanese State. Building from that, could you also talk about how the Ainu Labors get involved with this Japanese whaling in the Northern Territories? Yeah, sure. The work that I've done on Ainu drift whaling has been determined by the archival record that I can can track down. Data that we have is largely from the Akatsi side on the northeast corner of the island of Hokkaido. And one of the interesting takeaways from that work has been that Japanese merchants, as well as some Tokugawa officials, these kind of local administrative officers in Hakodate, essentially demanded a percentage of drift whale bone and meat and oil from the whales that the Ainu harvested on the coastline. At the time, there was not any active whaling in Hokkaido. The local indigenous Ainu, for the most part, only took advantage of the whales that washed up who'd been injured chased by orcas, sick, or died for other reasons at sea. But when the Japanese merchants and their Tokugawa official counterparts in Hakodate realized how profitable it could be to them, they were very enticed by the profit that could be gained from selling the oil, occasionally used as pesticides, from the bone and from the meat, which was dried and produced in different forms for jerky. And so we're very curious about all these Western multi-masted sailing ships circling around the island that they knew to be whalers and how they could take advantage of their technology so that they could multiply the profits that they were already extracting from the Ainu. And then so when does Japan start the deep sea factory ship? Is that a post-war innovation or is that even something that's happening in the pre-war period? It happens in the pre-war period. I mean, it's really a kind of late Meiji story. And, and at that point, uh, Americans are not that involved. It's mostly the Norwegians. But until that point, there were several U.S. missionaries in Hokkaido who became aware of the Japanese interest in developing deep-sea whaling and who used that as an entry point to start conversation and befriend and develop relationships with some of the enterprising Japanese who were looking for ways to expand the economy of Hokkaido. So one of the defenses that the Japanese government is making now for the Japanese whaling practice is, is that... Whaling has been so central to Japanese culture and cuisine. One criticism of that is, well, this is just something that the state is doing as a way to advance its own domestic policy. In fact, the New York Times editorial sparked a very vehement response from the Japanese government, was basically accusing them of that very thing. And your article was also looking at the relationship between whaling and the state, even going back to the colonization of Hokkaido. So do you see this as mainly a state issue and less of a cultural issue? Well, I think the answer to that question from a Japanese perspective depends on where you are in Japan. And so most recently, having spent the majority of my time in Hokkaido, certainly I think the Ainu population there today is frustrated about the Japanese government's continuing use of this idea of cultural exceptionalism or tradition, when in fact, if you think about the way that that logic has been mobilized in, in other nations, it actually has to do with indigenous practice. And so there are groups among the Ainu, particularly in this one eastern Hokkaido city of Mombetsu, 
who are lobbying the IWC periodically for permission as native peoples to return to active whaling. It's a bit complicated because historically in the Tokugawa period, the fact of the matter is that very rarely did they proactively go after whales. They basically used you know, the kind of protein involved from drift whaling. But I think one of the, the topics that's missing from this conversation in the press and at a national level in Japan, and the reason that historical context is important for really appreciating the nuances of the discussion is the way that Ainu population's history of whale culture is almost entirely omitted from the conversation. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars and academics bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Japan on the Record is hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, BC. Thank you for listening.